Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The first body I saw was off to the side, alone. Five more steps, and I saw another, and another, and another, hundreds of bodies. The Newsweek reporter was walking around and saying, I don't believe it. Another guy said, it's unreal. And nobody even attempted to speak anymore. It was overwhelming. Bizarre. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel by the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Annie Dawid about her new novel, Paradise Undone. It opens November 18, 2008, on the 30th anniversary of what has come to be known as the Jonestown Massacre. The reunion is in San Francisco, where one of the survivors is speaking to a reporter about how the Reverend James Jones saved him from the street when he was a teenager. He explains how the People's Church had been a haven for people like him, how a church doctor stockpiled Thorazine and used it to neutralize those who disagreed with James Jones, and how 917 people died in a murder-suicide in British Guiana that day by order of Jimmy Jones in Jonestown, British Guiana. Hi, Annie. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galid. Thank you so much for having me me on your show. So you write in your acknowledgments about how you came to be interested in researching Jimmy Jones, the People's Temple, and the Jonestown Massacre. Can you explain that? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of incidental. And um, I should say that I was giving somebody a card about my book the other day. This man says to me, you were in Jonestown, that Jonestown, how'd you get out? (laughs) And I said, no, I actually, I said, I'm a writer. I did research. I wasn't in Jonestown. So um, I was giving a reading and the, the organizer came up to me at the end because I had just mentioned the word Jonestown. The story I read was not about Jonestown. It was about some cult members, very, very different American, no no mass suicide in there. And he came up to me at the end and he was crying. And he said, I know people who've lost family members in Jonestown. And that was so not the response I was expecting to my story which was not about Jonestown. And so a couple of months later, when I was getting books together for my sabbatical, my second sabbatical, and I was going to write about these hippie communes in Southern Colorado, and I slid down the aisle from communes to cults, and I saw there were so many books about Jonestown that I had a, a bookstore aisle epiphany, and I said, I'm going to write about Jonestown instead because it felt really important. Whereas my book about the hippie communes 
had no urgency to mm. it. So that started, it, that was 2004, and here we are at the end of 2023, and now the book is coming out. So I've really spent the last 20 years on this book. Wow. The People's Temple started out as a wonderful idea. What was yes. it? What was it about? Well, so it was in Indiana, and you may or may not know that Indiana was like the heart of KKK territory. And uh, he and his wife, Marceline, started a church and they wanted to integrate it. And this was the 50s. There were no integrated churches. And so they were the first to do that. And, you know, a lot of people in Indianapolis were not happy to see black and white people worshiping together and they were threatened. And it was very much a kind of socially conscious church with helping people, helping old people, helping young people with drug problems, feet, you know, soup kitchens. And uh, he also, he and Marceline also adopted a black son who's named Jim Jones Jr., who is still alive now, who did not die in Jonestown and who never changed his name interestingly. Um, so they were also the first to adopt across racial lines. They adopted all they adopted all different kinds of children and they had one child of their own. So it started as very altruistic and a movement to take care of other people. And that was they did that for a very long time. And I would say while the People's Temple remained in the United States, it was a a respectable organization, even though things were starting to turn sour, mm -hmm. the more Jim Jones took more drugs and and acted in such a way that he seemed out of control. So that that happened in the States. But then when they got to Guyana, there was no more. There was no more control, well, what, and that's when it, what was it, it about him? What was it about Jim Jones that people loved? How did and how did they accept him calling himself God? Um, you know, in some ways, I can't answer that question very well because I've spent all this time sort of studying cults and trying to understand it, and that's what's driven me all this time. But I I couldn't say I understand it yet. Mm. Um. And maybe I never will, but the the charisma factor is very potent. So that on one hand, there's that where he was a great speaker, a great orator. He could, you know, persuade anyone of anything. So kind of a salesman in a certain way, a con man, if you will, Um but the social justice message was very real. And so if that was your slant then you you would want to take him up on it this is the you know the late 60s and the early 70s and the hippie movement and the anti-war movement had all gone kind of sour and there were a lot of people who felt disappointed the world didn't change and they wanted the world to be a better place and he was offering 
a route to do that. So that was kind of for the college educated mm -hmm. uh, utopianists. And then for the the majority of the People's Temple, which was African-American, often poor, but not only poor, um, many of them initially from the South, um, you know, he could do good preaching and they liked his preaching. And if he called himself God, they didn't like that. But the other stuff was good. So mm -hmm. he made he made sure that the seniors, as he would call them, um, that they had somebody to take them to the doctor. They made sure that they got their Social Security checks on time. They were the People's Temple were looking out for these old people living in the ghetto in San Francisco or L.A., and they felt looked after. Hmm. They felt cared for. Yeah, it's huge. And so it's huge. That's huge. And so if they didn't like something about his style, then they could overlook that because they they felt that he loved them. And I, I, I think in his way, he did love them. Okay. At the start of the book, the interviewer asks Watts, one of uh one of the followers who escaped Jonestown before the massacre, massacre. why right. 80% of the congregation was black, but the inner circle was white. Did, did his followers, did uh, Jones followers consider themselves a congregation? And, and can you address the racial disparity? Well, I mean, I would say the racial disparity regarding who's in charge and who's not is about racism, <laughs> even though, you know, he was anti-racist in all of his talk. In practice, he basically had all these young white women running everything because they were very good at it and he could manipulate them. Mm -hmm. So um, there's nothing good to say about why there's that power disparity. As far as the congregation I mean, I've read so many in so many different places how he was a master at changing his tone to suit the audience. Hmm. And so and he would go to black churches that had big followings and he would study their preachers and, you know, model himself on the good stuff. And he tried to steal uh congregants away from other churches. Hmm. That was part of what he did. Um, Watts says that this, the guy who was being interviewed, he says that living in Jonestown in Guyana was better than life in the States for many who were poor, especially the elderly. Can you say more? Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you've ever seen any of the pictures from Jonestown, it's, you know, it's tropical. It's the jungle. They all have their little dormitories and there are gardens and there are boardwalk walkways and i mean if you compare living there and there's no crime there's no worry about am i gonna have to spend my money on rent and not go to the doctor i mean you you would be taken to the doctor or the dentist and so if you compare that with living in the ghetto in watts for instance and worrying you're going to get jumped, you might step on a needle, all that sort of thing. I mean, I can see why that 
rural life in which you are looked out for. You may not have that much individual freedom, but you don't have to worry all the time about your safety and if you're going to have enough to eat. I think that sounds quite attractive. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, we've learned a lot in this country about autocratic leaders, including a recent president, but it seems that we've forgotten those of us who were alive and paying attention, how disdainful we all, we were all, we, we felt when we heard that people followed Jim Jones to British Guiana and then at his command took their own lives. The expression, drink the Kool-Aid comes from that massacre. Can you, can you address that? Well, the expression drinking the Kool-Aid has stayed with us. And many people talk about Trump as another kind of Jim Jones. He's very like Jim Jones in that he's persuading many people, although in this case, the numbers are far bigger than 1,000 in Jonestown, um, to do things which go against their, their health, their quality of life, for instance, COVID times. And uh, people called them brainless and zombies and terrible followers. But now we've kind of lost, for many, many have lost the initial origin of that. And, and drinking the Kool-Aid means just sort of swallowing the party line without questioning anything. And I would think that always a negative thing to do but like I'm not a follower mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we seem to have so many people who want to follow these days and and you know it was sort of twas ever thus right mm -hmm. there's always been people who accumulated followers for better and for worse and and Joan started as as a for better uh, you know, where people were helping poor and drug addicts and making their lives better. And then it it really deteriorated when they left the U.S. for Guyana. So it wouldn't have happened if they had stayed in this country. Um, yeah, I know that. Um, let's let's address Congressman Ryan's death. Who who were the armed forces that followed Jim Jones directives? So he had a number of young men, mostly African-American young men, who he appointed to be security for Jonestown. And he was terribly paranoid. And the more drugs he took, the more paranoid he got. So they ended up having these armed patrols. And so these were young men and they either had guns or they had cutlasses. And because they didn't have a lot of weapons. And so he sort of anointed them with this power to be in charge of life and death. And he told them to go to the airstrip and start shooting. And they did. Mm. Um, but what's important to remember is 909 people didn't all swallow Kool-Aid willingly. Mm -hmm. There were a third of them were children, a third of them were elderly, 
So they may or may not have had their own will. And then for the other 300, there were men with guns who were walking around and pointing their guns at you. Drink it, drink it. And then if you didn't want to drink it, there were needles that you were uh, administered poison. So, so it wasn't, you know, we always called it this mass suicide, but it's really more of a mass murder mm -hmm. than a mass you know suicide. What? It's so if, true. If you say minors or can't can't make their own decisions, then three hundred of those nine hundred were murdered, and then a lot of the old people were were feeble. Mm -hmm. Doctor Schlacht sounds like a horrible person. Was he really an MD? And and how did he accumulate all those drugs? How did he justify drugging anyone who was discovered wanting to leave? And how did he come to follow Jim Jones? Well, he came like many of the young people. He came as a drug addict. Uh, and one of the sort of, you know, back in the States, one of the big programs they had was to get people off of drugs. And so like he is like Watts in that he was a young man and he came to the temple with a drug problem. And then he was helped to get clean by the members of the people's temple. And that was a lot of human beings. It wasn't Jim Jones doing everything. Mm -hmm. um, so that's important to remember. But he was, uh, he came from an upper middle class Jewish background in, I believe it was Houston, one of the big Texas cities. And then he was in California when he joined the temple and Jones saw his potential and Jones was very good at figuring out what he needed from people. And he also knew that people want to be needed. And so um, Larry Schacht had uh talked about becoming a doctor and after he got clean jones enlisted the help of a friend of his who was the lieutenant governor of california because he had a lot of friends in high places in california and this guy helped to get larry into a medical school in mexico so he got his MD in Mexico, you know, with the idea that he would come back to the temple to help their operations. And then they ended up in Guyana. And really, as the head of all the services for this area in Guyana, he could just order. I mean, you could say there were no or not enough sort of safety protocols about ordering drugs. He was an MD and he ordered all this Thorazine. Yeah. And and Jones wanted, you know, Jones, it was Jones, Jones's orders to shoot people up who were um, who were not towing the party line and put them in like detention, which had the very Orwellian name of the emergency care unit. It was so frightening. Ah. At the 30th anniversary of the massacre, uh, that would have been 2008, 
Gwendolyn Nascimento, I don't know how to pronounce it, whose husband was the Guianese ambassador to the U.S. and and a member of the People's Temple. He speaks of Jonestown as an infestation of her country and calls those who attend the event colonizers. Can you say more, uh-huh. ab- more about her? Yeah. So the female that you're referring to, Nascimento, so she's the widow of Virgil, who was the Guinea's ambassador to the United States. And I mean, he's like the most difficult character in the book. And that wasn't his real name. Like I used Marceline and Jim Jones's real name, but I didn't use the ambassador's real name. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what happened was Guiana had thrown off the co- colonial oppressor, which was Britain. They were no longer British Guiana. They were Guiana. They had a Marxist government, which was part of why. Jones chose that country. The other reason was because they spoke English there. And um, after the massacre, you couldn't say the word Guiana without the next word being Jonestown. Mm. So the country was it was sort of just being born as an independent nation. And it got so stained by this massacre for decades and decades. We're coming up on 45 years later. So if I say to the guy walking down the street, Guiana, they say, oh, isn't that where all those people killed themselves? Oh. Those crazy people. Mm-hmm. So it's like they lost all the promise. And so he and then his widow, I think rightly felt very bitter about what Jim Jones did. I mean, he did it with the cooperation in many ways of the Guyanese government. But um, I think it's, it's you know, it's not the typical version of colonizing, but I think it's a version of that because they came to this country that wasn't their own. They did what they want. And then they left this mess stain on it that has never gone away. You know what, Annie, I have so many more questions about the book. It was fascinating, but I think people, we're just going to have to say people have to read it themselves (laughs) to to learn more. I'd like to know, what are you working on next? Um, I have another historical book, which focuses on a moment of American kind of civil rights history, which is not very known, not well known, which is during World War II, all these all black colleges in the South hosted roughly a thousand Jewish professors who came over kind of after Kristallnacht, but before the war started. Mm. And I have a it's a love story between a, a Jewish woman professor who comes over from Germany and an African-American uh, professor who's the chair of her department. I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today. and Lots of luck with the book. Thank you. I so appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb. 
author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Annie Dawid about her latest novel, Paradise Undone. Hope you all have a good book to cuddle up with tonight and always. Happy reading. <laughs> 